standing and open your Bibles to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. So familiar, maybe you can even, some of you can say it along by heart. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please be seated. And Lord, please help us today as we interact with your word. We know it's your Holy Spirit who does not just the heavy lifting, but all the lifting. We pray for your Holy Spirit to help us as we interact. Help us and teach us. Convict us, comfort us. You know what we need. And we thank you that you are going to supply that. Thank you for your word that we can look to and trust. In Jesus' name, amen. Revisiting a very familiar scripture can be be like one of two things. We can say, you know what, 23rd Psalm, I know that one backwards and forwards. Uh, I've seen this movie before. I can put my brain on autopilot. It's maybe sort of like watching a movie that you watch every year and, and uh, at Christmas time, for instance. And you say, I kind of know what's going on. And no, you don't need to pause it if I'm heading to the kitchen for a snack. Do you want anything? Now just keep it going. I know what's happening. Uh, we can take a text like this and approach it that way. Or maybe it's like when you've watched a favorite beloved movie and you've had it on VHS and then you get your DVD player. (laughs) I used to say, remember VHS players? Now some people are going, what's a DVD player? Um, But you go from VHS to DVD and the picture is clearer and you kind of see things and you look at expressions of some of the others. Uh, Especially if you then change the size of your screen. And you used to watch it on that VHS in that little, uh, little screen. And now it's a DVD player and it's clear. And then you watch it on some digital thing. And, and you say, wow, there is so much richness in here. I loved this movie before. And that, that, that every scene spoke to me. But now it really is, is getting me. And you put your phone down and you don't look at the scores or the news or your messages. And you just watch that thing. Uh, that's what I hope happens this morning as we look at the 23rd Psalm, which is very familiar to very many of us. said it's also maybe like reading the Chronicles of Narnia as a child and loving the story and then reading them to your kids as an adult after you've lived a Christian life for a while and you go, wow, there's some things in here that I didn't catch, but God was even planting seeds in me when I read it as a kid. That kind of a thing. So hopefully that will happen as we look at the 23rd Psalm this morning. From the very start, this is the introduction, but I hope you see at the very start 
the contrast between these two titles in the very opening phrase. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. That's familiar to us. But think of Lord. I think in whatever English translation you have in front of you, uh, Lord uh, will be in all capital letters. Now the ORD part will be smaller caps, but it'll be capital letters. The Lord is my shepherd. When the Bible does that, uh, other places, Lord will be there and it'll be capital L and small letters. Uh, What the translators were trying to do is to say this name for Lord. When you see those capitals, that's Yahweh. That's Adonai. That's God and his comprehensibleness. There are names we have for God that are... um, uh, that God gives himself, and God's the one who ultimately wrote the Bible, and so his self-description. But there are names that we have, uh, Jehovah Jireh, my provider, those types of things. But when you see Lord in all caps, that's talking about um, the comprehensiveness, everything you know about God put into that name, okay? Transcends time. God, who is self-sufficient. God, who needs nothing. God desires your worship, but does God need your worship? No, he desires it. You need to worship God, but God doesn't have some little fuel thing. He doesn't need his attaboys from you. Uh, You worship God. God needs nothing. And this is talking about this comprehensive Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. He doesn't need wisdom. Doesn't need to take a nap. My dad used to say this sometimes at the end of the day, but he'd, he'd work hard. He'd work hard as a state trooper in Iowa, then he'd work hard building the house, and he'd have it. He'd sit down in the chair, and when he was down in that chair, he was down. He'd say, go refill my water glass. Your legs are younger than mine, he would say. <laughs> and we, with our young legs, would go get his water, go get his, you know, he worked hard. God doesn't have to say, you do this for me. Your legs are younger than mine. God lets you serve him. God can do what God can do. This is the Lord. All caps. This is Yahweh. God doesn't need food. God's not thinking about his next meal. I am who I am, he said. Very God of very God, we say. And who is this God? This description of God in this chapter. It's not the only description of God. We see God, uh, uh, we see Jesus, second person of the Trinity. We see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. But this description of God as shepherd does run throughout Scripture as a very prominent self-description for God. God is our shepherd. David said, this Lord is my shepherd. And all of a sudden we have to think, what do we know about shepherds? Now, I read a lot, and you might have heard this. Somebody might say at Christmas time, and those shepherds, that was the lowliest job. That was the dirtiest job. That was the worst job. Nobody wanted to be a shepherd. They smelled. They were animals. That's not necessarily true that that was the lowliest job. They have a snippet uh, from a few hundred years after that incident where some rabbi wrote something derogatory about shepherds 
And if we're not careful in the way we look at things historically, we have one snatched up thing and we, we kind of apply it to centuries of history. It'd be like someone uh, looking back and grabbing one thing about policemen, say, and they got it at a, at a Black Lives Matter rally or something. And there's one description that survives in history and it's a very negative toward policemen. That doesn't mean that everybody for centuries, everywhere and even now, has bad things to say about policemen. You can't base your exegesis of scripture. You must look at history, but you can't take one thing out of history and say that. I don't think shepherds were always considered a bad job, if ever. It was a dirty job. They talk about the Old Testament. This psalm, by the way, written by David. The Bible says that. That's not a, an add-on. That's part of the Hebrew scripture, a psalm of David. David was a shepherd. Sometimes they say, well, even in the Old Testament, David, remember, he was just the youngest of the brothers, and, he, and because he was the youngest, he had to be out in the field with the shepherds, and the older brothers got to do this thing. Do you remember that story? That doesn't necessarily mean just because he was the youngest that that was a, the unwanted job. It could mean David was just the best one in the family at handling the shepherds, uh, or handling the sheep. So it's a particular job. But the contrast between the Lord is my shepherd isn't that the Lord, the God of all, would stoop to such a low-down, dirty job as being a shepherd. It's that he would do anything at all in relation to people that have rebelled against him. You see what I'm saying? Contrast the Lord God being our shepherd, but not focus on shepherd being a bad thing. If God had come to earth and lived in a palace, he still would have been stooping low. So understand that God is our shepherd. The fact that God would enter into any kind of a relationship with people who he created originally to love him, to interact with him, who sinned and went off. Uh, the fact that God would save us and say, I'll be anything to you, including a shepherd, that's huge. That's huge. Maybe I'll look at my notes and read what I wrote. The surprise is that God enters into any kind of relationship with people at all, and that in describing that relationship, both parties get very personal, and both parties use a personal pronoun, my. The fact that God would say, these are my people. The fact that we could even dare to say and be invited to say and encouraged to say, my Lord and my God. That's the wonder of it all. This is a psalm of David. He was the king and shepherd of his people. We would love it, wouldn't we, if any one of our leaders, any one of them, <laughs> give me one to stand up and say, here's my press conference. The Lord is my shepherd and I don't want anything other than him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And they talk about, in a way, not for a photo op, but because it's from their heart, they love God and they are shepherding us as our leaders, making decisions that matter for our lives and deaths and, and, and livelihoods. We could follow them as a shepherd better if they could say, the Lord is my shepherd. 
So here's David, the king of this people, saying, I'm shepherding my people. I take a responsibility, but I have a shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Think about that. And think about the reassurance that those people would have had when they heard and read and sang these psalms of David. As a kid, we would say, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. (laughs) What does that mean? I asked my mom, I said, that doesn't seem right. The Lord is my shepherd and I don't want him. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I was hearing it as a little kid being made to memorize it in a different way. You know, if somebody named Fred says, Frida is my wife who I don't really want, that's not a compliment. That's a bad thing. Don't say that about your wife. Uh, I thought that's what we were saying, and I couldn't understand it. As a little kid, Mom sat down with me, and she said, uh, you know, it means this. Because the Lord is my shepherd, there's nothing I don't want that I don't have that I want. I lack for nothing. And I want you to see this is an unqualified statement that David makes. The Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, there's nothing that I want. Psalm 34.10 says, Young lions can go without and be hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack for nothing. Those strong young lions, they can be hungry. Those who seek the Lord lack for nothing. This psalm lists things that other people need, people who don't have Christ as their shepherd, things that we used to need before we got saved. And he goes through this list of things. And I want us to see this morning, then, as we get into the body of the sermon, uh, the first thing that we do not lack for. With the Lord as my shepherd, I will not lack for rest. I will not lack for rest. Verse 2 of Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. There's a guy named Philip Keller. No relation to a famous New York pastor who also has that last name. But this was Philip Keller who was a shepherd. And he wrote a book called The Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23. And he took his experiences of being a shepherd in his life and and looked at the Bible, and he helped enlighten us a little bit on shepherding and and Christ the shepherd. He said there are four things that that have to happen, that have to be free and clear for a sheep to actually lie down. He said sheep have conflict with other sheep within the flock. These passive sheep, they can have uh, little issues with other sheep. It may surprise you to hear this, but sometimes in churches, people can have conflict with each other. Are you surprised? I'm not. Um, But conflict with other sheep, if there's that, they can't lie down. Uh, If there's fear, they won't lie down. Flies and fleas and things bugging them, they won't lie down and get their rest. Hunger. And you see how Jesus helps us in our personal conflicts. Jesus gives us that prescription in Matthew 18, and the Holy Spirit comes together in that passage. And we talk about, uh, sometimes we, we pull it and apply it to worship service, but even in conflict resolution, 
where it says, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There's the shepherd making sure there's peace. Jesus providing for us. Jesus taking care of us. Jesus taking care of the annoyances and letting us get that rest. Thinking of a couple of pictures in Norman Rockwell's paintings, The Four Freedoms. You think of the kids sleeping with mom and dad standing by their bedside. That's a good picture of what Jesus does for us. There's conflict all around, but we have freedom from fear. Hammurabi in those days, uh, just to, to show this was not, this is uh, this idea of, of the king and the shepherd leading his people to peace was, was, was permeated the rest of the culture because all truth is God's truth. And Hammurabi in his epilogue of, log of his law code said about his people and the way he led his people, kind of a boast. He said, I've sought for them peaceful places. I made the people of all settlements lie in safe pastures. The psalmist says, because the Lord, Yahweh, is my God, is also my shepherd. He does not make me lack for rest. That idea of peaceful waters. He makes me lie down beside still waters or peaceful waters. And not just it's time for rest, but that, that place of rest and that place of peace. Protection from enemies. A culture where life can thrive. That life-affirming culture of God. God is a fan of life. He's an enemy of death. He conquered death. He conquered spiritually death. And God is pro-life. The lifting of any threat of divine punishment where you can be alive The rest that's promised. Isaiah 30, verse 15, talks about rest. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. I have the Lord as my shepherd, and I can rest. I have life that God gives me, and that life uh, helps me. Brings me peace and rest. Second thing is, I will not lack for life. Verse 3. Verse 3 of the 23rd Psalm says, He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. So I don't lack for rest and I don't lack for life. The paths of righteousness. He leads me, leads me in paths of righteousness. Now there's a couple ways you can take this. Him leading you in a path of righteousness could be uh, understood properly, they say, from the Hebrew, uh, as uh, he's like the perfect GPS. And he can lead you in those paths of righteousness, the right paths, the right way. Uh, Somebody just put it, they said it could be like, um, let me find it, easy roadways, no tolls, uh, that type of a thing. But we know human GPSs fail. I read an article one time, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal when, when everybody was buying a GPS. And it said, would you follow your GPS off a cliff? And it talked about sad cases where people just, they didn't watch the road, they watched their GPS and the map, and, and our road was closed. Sorry, bridge is out. 
could mean that God is the one who leads us just in the right paths in this life. The Bible does say, thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. But the Hebrew scholars say this is a double meaning. And the first is a metaphor. Because we're not talking about our literal sheep. And we're not talking about a literal physical shepherd. And the paths of righteousness are not necessarily literal roads made of gravel or pavement. He leads us in the paths of righteousness. Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. Keep straight the path of your feet. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And right there in the context of the paths of righteousness, of the right way to go, uh, I'm thinking right now of of a verse, and you've probably heard this one, where it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you. And it talks about doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly with your God. Uh, There's a way to go. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And it says, he keeps me alive by leading me in the paths of righteousness. And then it goes deeper into this metaphor, this understanding or this explanation of it. He restores my soul. Hebrew word, subah. Overtones of repentance. I'll read the verse I found that from the Old Testament that uses this and, and kind of helps tie this together. Jeremiah 50, verse 6, and then verses 19 and 20 of Jeremiah 50. God says, my people have, uh, have uh, lost their shepherd. They've been lost. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone, They have forgotten their fold. And God elaborates on this. Then he says about himself as the shepherd, I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan. And his desire shall be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and in Gilead. In those days and in that time, declares the Lord, iniquity shall be sought in Israel, and there shall be none. And sin in Judah, and none shall be found for I will pardon those whom I leave as a remnant. Think about him restoring our soul. Think about and, and, and look back to last week's sermon, the two, weeks, the two prior Sundays where we looked at John 10 uh, about Jesus coming that they may have life and have it to the full. And he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus was righteous. He was perfectly righteous. His path of righteousness led him to the cross to the grave, to be resurrected. And he follows us to his paths of righteousness. We can't be perfectly righteous like him. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Follow him to that cross. Think about what it means to to, to have your sin paid for by him. He restores my soul. So we have rest that we don't lack. We have life itself and we have this guidance I will not lack for guidance. This ties in with what we've been saying all along uh, about him leading in paths of righteousness for his namesake. There's a guide. There's a way to live. Uh, He lays it out in his word. It's modeled for us so many times by godly uh, examples. Uh, Some of us in our parents. Thank God for the paths of righteousness that he leads us into. 
Next, he says, I will not lack for safety. Verse 4. This may be the famous, uh, maybe the more famous one that you see. Uh, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Well, I've got a funny story. I used to fancy myself to be a great hospital visitor type guy. Sometimes I'd call Paul. The church I was at was like a big church. And I was the associate pastor. The pastor preached the sermons. And I did the hospital visits and everything like that. And I'd call Paul. This happened, I think, at least, at least once we talk about it. I think it happened more than that. I'd say, Paul, I'm just feeling really down and discouraged today. And Paula would say, well, go make hospital visits. That always cheers you up. And it always did to be able to provide comfort for people in their, in their time of need and distress. But my hospital visit didn't go so good one time with a woman who misunderstood the purpose of Psalm 23. Uh, she was a lady. Uh, English wasn't her first language. She was from the Middle East. She had a Roman Catholic background, and she was very familiar with the uh, with the, the, the doctrine of last rites. So last rites was on her mind. Um, she was familiar with Psalm 23, but like a lot of us are, Psalm 23, uh, if you see a funeral on, on TV, in a movie or something like that in the show, and they have the pastor and then the script writers don't know what to say, they have him say something about, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like probably 90% of all TV and movie funerals uh, if they have the pastor saying something, it's the 23rd Psalm. So this dear lady, son was out of town. She ended up in the hospital for a reason, not life-threatening at all, but she was there. First time in the hospital by herself, she was a widow. Family wasn't there. Everybody reassured her she was fine, but her son just, I guess he thought I was a good hospital visitor too, so he says, hey, Pastor Dave, can you go see my mom? Sure, I'm on it. So I went and talked with her, and I said, now, can I read you some scripture before I go? And she's looking at me. She's very, very compliant with everything I'm saying and doing. And I just read to me what I knew would be familiar to her, which it was. I read the 23rd Psalm. And she thought that they'd all been lying to her. She was going to die in that hospital, and I was giving her whatever the Protestant version of last rites were. And I walked out of there thinking, you know, Thank you, God, for allowing me to do this. (laughs) Not her. She's on the phone. She's asking her doctors when she's going to die, and it just added all kinds of of strife to her. Um, (laughs) I departed the hospital silently congratulating myself on a successful visit. The next time I saw her son, he chuckled, and he shook his head. (laughs) His advice was never read Psalm 23 to anybody in the hospital unless it really was a deathbed thing because he spent a lot of time trying to talk his mom off the, off the edge. Listen, this verse, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, is not exclusively applied to whatever near-death experience you've had. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death when we read our newspaper. When we see images of people dead, Right now, it's just like I hate it. I hate, oh, I can't look, but I, when I look, I want to pray, but you see the nearness of death and you see beautiful people. 
laying there in the street with their beautiful kids. Bombed, dead. I don't know anything about all the geopolitics of all the war. I'm not going to, have, I have my ideas, you have your ideas. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about the things about people dying and bombing and war is terrible. And what's happening to those Ukrainian people is terrible. Went to Costco yesterday and you know, somebody, somebody says, just trying to find a parking spot at, at Costco on a Saturday afternoon. That's walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, it could be. Uh, that's terrible. <laughs> Never again. That's what I said the last time. But I started looking around and I was thinking about all those Ukrainians finding shelter in that movie theater and getting bombed and, and fire starting. And I thought, how would all of us do? All of us in line, all of us jockeying for places, all of us saying, you go first or, or pushing our own way. How would we do if we were all huddled together just from our society uh, and, and the bombs were dropping? How would we do? How would I do? How would I respond to the other people? And you think about that. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death even when we read the paper. We walk through the valley of a shadow of death when you stick your neck out for Christ in even a family setting in some cases. And you just give an opinion about Jesus and the hostility that comes, uh, the the disdain that comes. You're just an old fogey. You're old-fashioned. When our generation comes in, we're going to make this brave new world and we're going to have it right. And there's a valley of a shadow of death even then. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death when you go for your annual physical for the first time in a decade. <laughs> annual physical, first time in a decade. That happens. And you go, what's, what's, gonna, what's coming? There's a lot that can happen. And we live this way. We live in a, a world where we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. I want to say this. If you have a situation in life, something arises all of a sudden, and there's some emergency at work or in the hospital or or, or within the walls of your house, or whatever. So you get a work situation where a meeting's been called, and you give me the SOS, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to stop and, and pray, and I'm going to try and get the message to you that you're not walking into that meeting alone, but your shepherd is walking in there with you, and let him be the comfort for you. Uh, let him uh, absorb and let him give you the words to say and the wisdom to speak. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're not alone. It says, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Shepherd had two instruments. Our new church logo with the cross and the shepherd's staff trying to reflect Christ the shepherd. Well, shepherd had a rod. The rod was not to beat the sheep. The rod was to fight off the lion and the bear, to fight off the ravenous wolves, maybe even the other uh, uh, wicked humans who are coming to steal the sheep. The rod was not for the sheep. The rod was for the outside. The staff, the shepherd's staff with its crook, sheep would get off the path, and that shepherd would just reach out and gently pull that in. That's what the staff was for. David writing this said, I'm comforted because you are on the attack against the enemies but you are there with that staff 
that will help me. You have the means and the, and, the, and the desire to help me as my true shepherd. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. Think about the prayer we prayed at the very start, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That's a rod and a staff. Uh, asking God to lead us not into temptation. To take that staff and, and, and to help us, put us in the right path. And deliver us from the evil one. Positive and a negative. The rod and the staff. But Jesus has them both. Both of those instruments. And he uses them both right for you. Because you have the personal pronoun. My shepherd. You're a Christian. You have a shepherd that that is your shepherd. He looks at you and says that's my sheep. And I've got this rod and staff. And I've got all the ability because I'm the Lord. I'm going to protect her. I'm going to take care of him. Then it switches. All of a sudden, the metaphor changes, and people say it's not truly the shepherd's psalm. It's also a psalm of a king or a gracious host. And, and, and these last two verses in, in the scripture, uh, you say, well, is this shepherding? And I say, yes, it is, but it switches, and it becomes, in addition to the shepherding aspect, the idea of a gracious, kingly banquet host. Uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And there's the picture of hospitality, of Old Testament, Middle Eastern hospitality. And uh, people have said, well, what kind of hospitality is it? Is it like the hospitality that Abram gave when those angels came unawares and he killed the calf and he put a feast because they were travelers? That kind of hospitality, is that what he means with, with you prepare a table before me? Or is it like the Feast of Thanksgiving that the Old Testament talks about after the harvest? Deuteronomy 12 and 14 talk about the Feast of Thanksgiving. Is that the kind of feast and table David is talking about? Someone said it's a, and here's, here's the, uh, the language. I had to scratch my head and think about it and put my thinking cap back on. Someone said a ritual meal in response to the oracle of salvation that David heard from a priest. And I thought, oh, I think what that means is sort of like when Hannah went down with her husband Elkanah uh, to Shiloh, and they would offer sacrifices annually. But involved in that would be this time of feasting and sacrifice combined, and maybe it's that kind of a thing. Um, somebody said maybe a royally provided feast, uh, like a king gave, and, and, and they, they referenced David finding Jonathan's son after all of it was over. And, and he said Mephibosheth, you will always eat at my table. Okay? Who knows what kind of a feast, but it's talking about a, a wonderful feast. Proverbs 25, 6 and 7 uh, says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. What we know is this. God has a feast that he gives to his people. As a shepherd, he leads and guides and gives them protection and rest. As their gracious host, he provides. Isaiah 55.1, here's what your shepherd says to you in his role as host and king. He says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Think about 
following Christ your shepherd all the way to heaven. What's this great metaphor, this great picture in heaven? Maybe I hate to take in your minds, go back and erase that word metaphor. What's this picture? What does it tell us about heaven? What goes on in heaven uh, regarding feasting? Revelation 19.9, And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Last week, uh, Tina and Abishek and, and, and company came over to the house, and, and Tina was talking about getting to go back to India for a while now with uh, Noel. And uh, one of the things she misses and likes, and she was describing an Indian wedding. And all of the feasting and all of the colors and all of the all that's involved. The weddings are every wedding is big and huge, and, and you picture the celebration that's there. And I've seen uh, pictures of, of those things, and, and that made me uh, reminded me of what it's going to be like in heaven—a celebratory feast. David says in this psalm about the Lord being his shepherd. He says, "You prepare a table before me." In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. That's coming. There's no valley of shadow of the valley of death in heaven. There's feasting and worship and beauty and joy and everything wondrous. Don't get too attached to here. Don't get too attached to here. Think about what's happening there. And that place that your shepherd is leading you to there. You're a Christian. You're following Jesus all the way through to that. And that's the last point of the sermon. I have a heavenly home, he says. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Goodness, Tob, mercy, has said. The word goodness and mercy, the word follow. And I, I don't think I've used this many, like, t- movie applications or whatever in a long time. Usually it's music or sports. But if you've watched a movie and you've seen how, like, the, the, the jet plane is trying to get away and there's something following, and they launch a missile. And that missile, they can't just shoot straight and think where it's going to be like a football player. Uh, it'd be like a quarterback. There's a sports one. Uh, it'd be like a quarterback if he could do this with a, with a ball. And he can program that ball. And whatever pattern the wide receiver uh, runs, that ball is going to pursue him and find him. Uh, That's the idea of pursue. Goodness and mercy shall pursue me all the days of my life. They are honed in on you if you're a Christian. Goodness and mercy are following you all the days of your life, uh, all the way to heaven. Here's goodness and here's mercy. They've got your back. They're there. They'll follow me all the days of my life and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The song said, just look over your shoulder. Just look over your shoulder. I'll be there. I'll be there. Goodness and mercy will be there, Christian. No mountain high, no valley low. There's your song one. Okay, now we'll go on. Um, I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Where is his ultimate vision? He's looking at what God's done for him. He's looking at what God's, how God's taking care of him. You do that as Christians all the time. You look back and you say, ah, man, I, I was in despair. God was there. God led me to this. God did that. God did this. Um, but he's, he's not dwelling on the past. 
tuned in yesterday on the radio, and I'm not a racing fan, but they had this thing called the 12 Hours of Sebring, and, it, and I thought, 12 Hours of Sebring on the radio? Uh, a race, they go drive for 12 hours like Le Mans, only half of it, started at 10 o'clock, ended at 10 o'clock, and I said, you know what? I need something because I need to concentrate. I just need it because of the little ADD thing going on. I need a little bit of something in the background to, to provide a little wall of noise. If it's music, I'm going to tune into the music, and it's going to be three to eight-minute segments, and, and I'm, that's not going to help. If it's a sports team I care about, that's not going to help. But I'll just put on this play-by-play, and it would fade in and out. This old English, uh, older gentleman, English broadcaster, was talking to somebody who used to be a race car driver, a Formula One guy. And he goes, uh, don't you wish you could climb behind the wheel of one of these cars and race again? And the old racer said, no. Oh, come on. You, don't you wish you could just go back in time and race again? He goes, not really. Come on, why? And they realized they were talking about two different things. The one was, was, was trying to drum up excitement for the race that he was watching. The other one just uh, thought he was asking, don't you wish you could go back in time? And this former famous racer was doing just fine. He bought an old F1 car. He was telling he was refurbished and all that. He said, but if I was to get in one of these race cars, I'd die. I don't have the skill anymore. I don't have what it takes to, to drive. No, I don't wish I could uh, get in this car and drive on this track with all these guys. I'd be dead. And I thought, you know what? There's a, how about us in our walk with Christ? We have moments of nostalgia, but you can't go back anyway. I was driving in this morning and on Sunday mornings, every time I tune in Bluegrass Gospel, and, and that, that's good stuff. And I thought, and I looked over at the empty spot in my car where my son used to ride in with me. And I thought about him. I said, I got I to gotta write to David today, uh, touch base with him, and tell him I missed him and thought about him today. I wish I could go back and have a day like that. Can't. Live in the present. Look to the future. And you do what you can here. The psalmist says, the shepherd's leading me. He's taking care of me in the past, and I remember that, so I know he's going to keep taking care of me in the future. But I'm going to a place. I'm going to my home on high. I'm going to the place where he's building for me. And that's what I do as I follow my shepherd because I followed him to the cross first and confessed my sins and let him be the substitute for for my, my needs and my sins and pay that price. And now I can follow him all the way to heaven. Just read quick, and then we're, we're going. Think about these. You've probably, by God's grace, you've probably come up with some applications, and I've given a few uh, for our lives, so it's not just a, a treatise, but, but something that helps us in our lives, but just summary. I wrote this. On earth, while we are here, it is a journey through a world that can be hostile. There is a need for an outside source to lead and guide and protect us. That's true. Our shepherd is Jesus. He's here. He's present with you through his Holy Spirit. Your ultimate green pasture, your ultimate dwelling place, your ultimate banquet is there, heaven. You will worship him there. And what you will say in heaven is, there's the good shepherd who gave his life for me, who led me and loved me. He's also my king and he's worthy of my praise. And that's where we're headed. And I would just say this, I am so glad to be on the journey together. I'm glad for a church. That we can do this together and we walk together as our shepherd leads us. Let's pray and go to the table.
Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this psalm. Thank you for the reminder again and again throughout Scripture of your power and protection, your provision, your leadership, and your love for us. And thank you that we can just throw ourselves into the identity you've given us as your sons and daughters. And that's how we identify Christian, saved by grace, following Jesus. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.